Radio Drone. All right, welcome to another brilliant, just brilliant episode of Even I Don't Buy That. So Brad and Brian are off somewhere being Brad and Brian. So I unfortunately had to bring Charlie McMullen back and Matthew Coates has returned. Well, well, you know. Suede Alex. You know him as Suede Alex on this show. I don't know him as Suede Alex. Neither do I. I I know him as either Alex Jowski or real name Matthew Coates. Look him up. Actually, you'll find nothing for my real name. I haven't used my real name in like 10 years. I know him as Fish. I was going to ask you why you always call him Fish, but I really don't care enough to (laughs) do it. I'll give you that story some other time. So tonight's topic is actually going to be what happened to low-budget filmmaking? And what I mean by that is what happened to being able to borrow half a million dollars from a bank and make a releasable to the drive-in, to video, to theaters movie, and now half a million dollars can't even get you in pre-production on a direct-to-video film in most cases. And we're obviously going to be talking about some of the exceptions that are to this rule as well. Alex is here just because I needed a third person, but Charlie's here because he is actually a low-budget filmmaker himself. I am a low-budget filmmaker. You don't count. It's Charlie that matters. I have dreams. And he's naked in all of them. No, I thought Tom Cruise was. So when you guys hear the term low-budget film, what's the first thing that enters your mind? And there's an age difference between you two and me, so I think what I think of is different than you. So, Charlie, when you hear low-budget film, what what do you think of with that? The first movie that I think of when I hear low-budget film is Clerks. Clerks, uh, Clerks has been the model for me and everybody that I went to film school with. Uh, whoever has wanted to make their own movie and have and and have it like as a movie like when you think of a movie I want to make that Kevin Smith with Clerks is the legend that keeps us all going anything under a million dollars whether it was good quality or bad it's just had a low budget and see what I think of has changed I used to think low budget film was those those movies you saw on a UHF channel at 3 in the morning on some local station, film scratches all over it, had a couple of name actors, incoherent plot. And then I go and find out that those are 6 to $10 million movies. But, but they always looked so cheap that you always assumed those were low budget. Now when I think low budget, I think of the absolute trash being churned out by the Asylum or Fred Oland Ray, or Good God, the Sci-Fi Channel. Uh, those are almost all one and the same at this point, though. Fred Oland Ray is working for the Asylum, and his son... Well, no, he's working for Sci-Fi, and his son is working for the Asylum. Well, but, but you guys understand what I mean about how low-budget filmmaking has changed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. Because, like, I, I look at a, at a movie like The Toxic Avenger, which was made for a half a million dollars, which... Might have seemed like a lot in 1984, but it was nothing compared to what 20th Century Fox and all these other places were doing. For that half a million dollars, he got a completely releasable film that made a ton at the box office. 
Can you really do that today for, with a half million dollars unless you luck out with a paranormal activity or something? I would say even even if you don't luck out with uh, something like the Paranormal Activity movies or the Blair Wish Project, it's it's not the same industry it was back then. No, it's not. The reason that Toxic Avenger works is because there was time. That movie was made to entertain. Most of the low-budget movies like The Asylum and the sci-fi stuff, those are meant just to make a profit. They're meant to cash in on a trend. They're not making a quality movie. They know they're not making it. They're just dumping as little as they can into making something that people will watch just because of it has a catchy title. Well, and, and if we're talking about low budget with the Toxic Avenger example, we also can't ignore the whole fact of what Charles Band and Lloyd Kaufman saw before the studios ever did, which was the rise of direct-to-video. They saw that the drive-in was dying, and there's a totally new market for these low-budget films. Because before, if you made a low-budget movie, you were lucky if you got it into a drive-in, and then maybe you could sell it to, to TV, to a TV syndicator. All of a sudden, you saw... I can sell a million copies of the Toxic Avenger on video cassette, even if I only price them at 50 cents a piece and I sell a million of them, I've made a profit right there. And they were priced at a lot more than 50 cents a piece. So do you guys see that the like Alex pointed out kind of the business model was starting to change on what a low budget film could look to do box office wise? Uh, I think I think looking at it from a business perspective to begin with is a mistake. I think if that's your motivation, then there's already enough movies in the world that are completely profit-motivated, and we don't need any more. Charles Band and Lloyd Kaufman, they saw the future. They saw The studios, you have to remember, were ignoring home video at this point. They didn't even want to release their already established films like Jaws or Good, the Bad, and the Ugly onto video because they thought that would take away from TV sales. Whereas Charles Band and Kaufman went, it's a whole new untapped market. Let's be the first to do this. A lot of people would say the drive-in really democratized low-budget film, and it did for quite a while. And I think home video democratized low-budget film far more than the drive-in did. problem was that um, Full Moon and others started doing so good at it that there was such a glut you know, that the home video market became unprofitable for a while. It, the same logic of the video game crash. There was just so much crap that people stopped trusting it. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, uh, I, I really liked the, the climate of the whole industry when home video started because that was before video stores were controlled by, by bigger interests, mostly studios and networks. Back then, you all you had to do was contact a video store directly I've got this many copies of my movie, how many do you want? And you sold them direct to the video store. Most often at like 100 bucks a piece. So if you if you did it with a micromanagement kind of attitude like that, then it was truly democratic. You could have uh, a movie that some, some guy made in his backyard right next to the breakfast club. Well, and you also kind of had that with the drive-in scene as well. I mean, you have a movie like The Legend of Boggy Creek, that is the third highest grossing film of 1977. It beat almost every major title you can think of. And it was this little $150,000 film because it just caught fire at these drive-ins that they, that they were selling it to. There was one point they had so many pre-sales or so many sales 
on Legend of Boggy Creek, there were not enough prints to go around to all the drive-ins that wanted this movie. Now, hmm. that is everything that a low-budget film in the 70s could have aspired to. The demand far exceeds the supply. I think one thing is that the term low-budget film has been misused. And I think it's always been misused because I, I go and look at movies from the early 80s and I, I, I listen to the commentary on like The Howling, a movie I absolutely love. The movie looks phenomenal. And you hear Joe Dante going, oh, we only had a million dollars to make this movie. And I'm like, only? Yeah, that, that definitely hurts. Yeah, I only the- had a million dollars. Speaking of of the howling, you also have Ad, Avco Embassy was a big one that they put. They were kind of uh, no, okay. It's not going to be fair to call them the asylum of their time, but because they put out a lot of quality product. But their their business model at Avco Embassy was we're going to be the low budget drive in film supplier. And for those that don't know, Ad, Avco Embassy are the people that put out. Prom Night, The Howling, The Fog, Escape from New York, The Psychic, movies like that. Avco Embassy was, they were churning out these one to two million dollar films that were turning around and making 15, 20 million dollars. And I'm just not sure I'm comfortable with with calling Escape from New York a low budget film at six million dollars, especially six 1981 million dollars. I, I would very much agree to that. And when you're talking about low budgets, I mean, I I don't even think that a million dollars should be the cutoff mark. I think when when you talk about low budget movies, you're talking about low budget directors that make them. And approaching numbers beyond, I would say even like two thousand dollars, then that's when a lot of people say, "Well, never mind. I can't do that." I consider a million dollars in two thousand twelve dollars to be big budget. But then again, it goes to what you're trying to accomplish with that movie. I mean, what would the if you were trying to make that movie on endless money, what would the budget end up being? Well, like if and, you take a successful version of, you know, let's take any random Michael Bay movie. If you're trying to do that on five hundred thousand, that is low budget. Well, what I'm thinking of, what I'm thinking of, Alex, is like. That, that crappy Eric Roberts movie I worked on, Project Solitude, that had a budget of $1.8 million. And it looks like crap. It's not all that well shot. Eric Roberts was the only quote-unquote name that they could get for it. And yet that had a larger budget in non-adjusted dollars than The Howling did. And The Howling looks better. It's a better movie. It's got bigger stars. It's got better effects. When you adjust for inflation, The Howling did have a much larger budget. But at the same time, couldn't it come down to the filmmakers? Joe Dante was just a much better filmmaker than Rustin Branham? Yeah, I would say that's that's a huge factor, and it's overlooked way way too often. It's It should be about who's the more talented filmmaker. Like, who can do the most with the with less money? Because it just it really bugs me when I, I keep I keep reading DVD reviews or or whatnot, and they talk about Escape from New York, which had just over six million dollars for a budget. Again, six million nineteen eighty one dollars, and they keep calling it a low budget quickie. And I'm like, not at all. For six million dollars, I mean, yes, in capable hands like Carpenter, but could you imagine what Corman could have made in 1981 with six million dollars? Twelve movies. Probably. 
Okay, if he had $6 million for a single film, you know, somebody who's who's absolutely used to working like that. I mean, yes, Carpenter came off low budget. The original Halloween only had a $320,000 budget, but it also didn't need matte paintings and effects and things like that. But then you look at a true independent low-budget movie like 1982's Basket Case. Do you guys know what the budget for Basket Case was? I don't know the exact number, but it was not a lot. $33,000 in 1982. $33,000. Can you imagine making a releasable film on the scale of Basket Case for $33,000 even adjusted for inflation today? Not on film. Yeah, and yeah, and the other thing that Alex just pointed out, and that was on film as well. That wasn't using the, the digital shortcuts you have and it's CGI. We're talking prosthetics and we're talking makeup effects and we're talking actual animatronics and things like that. Locations but, instead of green screens. Right. So to me, low budget has the, the, to me that term's always really been misapplied. It really has, like, I hear, and I'm not bashing on Tarantino like I normally do here, but I do think even he misuses the term. He calls Reservoir Dogs a low-budget movie. You've got a major cast, major distribution, and a multi-million dollar budget for what is essentially a bunch of guys sitting around pointing guns at each other and talking for two hours. That's not a low-budget movie to me. Right. I mean, Reservoir Dogs... When I was a kid, I, I think I saw Reservoir Dogs for the first time when I was 13. Um, I knew that, I, that when I got older, I wanted to make movies. But Reservoir Dogs was not the movie that, that made me feel like I could do it. Because Reservoir Dogs is glossy. It looks good. It has professional editing. It has professional sound. It has, uh, what was at that time, a hugely A-list cast. That, that's not going to make me think that I, can, that I can make a movie. Whereas, like you pointed out, Clerks... No-name cast, shot in black and white, shot with a very low-budget feel. That's the only way I can put it. And that movie would not feel right if it had been shot with $10 million in color on totally professional-grade equipment. I don't think that movie, like Clerks 2. I like Clerks 2, don't get me wrong, but it's not nearly as strong of a film. And to me, when you're talking low-budget filmmaking, one of the things is... Not having money, I think, forces creativity. When you when you can't just pull a Michael Cimino, when you look at Michael Cimino on The Deer Hunter or Heaven's Gate or Good God, The Sicilian, he had basically a blank check, and he said, yeah. we're, we're going to use it. They were shooting in Italy and having food flown over from New York City every day for, so his stars could eat out of American restaurants. And you just go, this guy cannot work on a half-million-dollar budget. There's no way Michael Cimino could make a film on a half-million dollars. He needs what what is the equivalent adjusted for inflation of probably a hundred-million-dollar budget. Just like, I don't think Michael Bay could make a, a low-budget movie anymore. I really don't. He, he I don't think he ever could. Yeah, I could make an argument that he can't make mega-budget movies either. Fair enough, Charlie. Okay, you, you caught me on a technicality with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he couldn't physically make a mega-budget movie. How's that, McMullen? There we go. That's better. 
they show him anything less than a hundred million dollar budget, he'll turn up his nose, and that's below me. Well, because uh, again, when you listen to a lot of commentaries on, especially really low low budget, real low budget movies, and you listen to the commentaries, and you find all the struggles that they had to go through, and the workarounds, their ingenuity is rewarded uh, by what's on the screen. And then you listen to a Michael Bay commentary, and yeah, th- this scene didn't work, so we just had the whole set torn down, and we just rebuilt it because we could. Oh god, yeah. I can he- I can hear that in his voice as you say it. <laughs> yeah, just just read Lloyd Kaufman's "Make Your Own Damn Movie." Absolutely, he- you you find out you find out a lot of the tricks that you wouldn't normally think you could do to save money, but these people were forced to be creative. It, it's sort of the same way, and I don't want to spend too much time on this one. It's sort of the same difference between anyone that goes, "Oh, CGI is so awesome, and it's so much better than anything else." Watch that two-and-a-half-hour documentary on the 2005 King Kong DVD. All that will do is make you hate how lazy CGI artists are compared to people that really had to work at their craft with no goddamn money. Well, here's the big difference between CGI and making a movie with practical effects. If you make a movie with practical effects, you're there with other people working to accomplish a goal. You're spending time with other human beings versus CGI, which is one guy at a computer for 10 hours. It's the most antisocial way of making a movie. Yeah, that's an excellent point. But then you also have, some again, sometimes the budget gets in your way. Like, I loved The Devil's Rejects. I've made it clear on this show before, I'm not a Rob Zombie fan. The thing that offended me the most in that film was all of the CGI blood. And I'm going... You had millions to make this movie, and you add the blood in post? Are you serious, Rob? Considering the movie is an homage to the 70s style, where they didn't use CGI, that's rather ironic. Yeah, you would think that, of all films, would use real blood. Yeah, I I didn't even know that about uh, The Devil's Rejects. That's ridiculous. When you watch the the behind-the-scenes, you're like, CG blood. Even the scene where Baby throws the knife into the Three's Company chick, she doesn't throw anything. The knife is all added in post. The nails, <laughs> the, the nails going into Otis's hand, were all added in post. William Forsythe is just pretending to hammer. And I'm like, really? They could do these practicals absolutely realistically in Texas Chainsaw Massacre Three in 1990. You're telling me you had to do it in the computer? Seriously? It's ridiculous. And that the scenes that you mentioned uh, illustrate what m- my big problem with CGI is. And that problem is that it looks like CGI. And it's also, uh, I think it creates laziness in low-budget filmmakers. Because it, you can do it like this, so why don't you? But then you've got, you've got all these legit low-budget movies that Blair Witch Project, $25,000 budget. Unf- it does look like it, though. Yeah, I was going to say, somebody's walking around with, you know, $24,000 in profit. Right. <laughs> but but then you also have something like Napoleon Dynamite. I hate the film. I love it. But it looks Dynamite. far more expensive than a $400,000 movie, doesn't it? It has a very polished look to it. It doesn't have the the same dirty look as, well, most of current DirecTV budgets. Right. Like and, you, you know, you even have, you want to talk polished... Most people would be surprised 
if they found out that the original Friday the 13th only had a half million dollar budget. That would surprise most people. They'd go, that's it? Yeah, would you believe that Friday the 13th 2 was twice the budget? Right, and then you've got The Fog for one million. You've got Mad Max for $200,000. You've got Phantasm. Phantasm with a whole bunch of special effects, including really innovative effects, $300,000. And, you know, you've got you've got huge Conan-style epics like Sword and the Sorcerer, $4 million. And that does sound like a lot for 1982. Think about all the sets and the monsters and the costumes that needed to be created for only $4 million for that entire movie. Compare it to Conan. Yeah, and Conan had a massive budget. Dude, that's your answer for everything. Compare it to Conan. <laughs> when you're talking fantasy, answer. yes. Well, I mean, speaking from my own point of view, if if somebody gave me $500,000 and said make a movie, I would have no question at all whether or not I could do it. Courtney C. Joyner told this great story on the old Shock Cinema VHS set, the documentary series that was out in the early 90s, where he said he was writing a movie, and it, it was a, it was basically like Escape from New York on a space station. It was a real low-budget movie. I think it was the Michael Pere movie, uh, Dead Space, but I'm not 100% sure because he didn't say the title. The writer, or the producers kept telling him, just write us this movie. He's like, well, what budget are you looking at? They're like, just write whatever you want. We'll find a way to make it into the budget. And he kind of rolls his eyes during the interview and goes... I didn't want to do that because I knew I would write a $20 million film when they've got $200,000 to work with. So you can't just write whatever you want and we'll find a way to make it work. You have to write to your budget. Do you agree with that, Alex? Absolutely. And that is one big problem with in uh, low-budget filmmaking these days is that people try to do too much for too little. If they have $25,000 to make a zombie movie – they're going to make some glorious epic that's just going to look terrible instead of writing something that can conceivably be done for $25,000. I would, I would more or less agree with that. I think the first draft of the script should be written without the budget in mind, just, uh, just to get the best story that you possibly can. But uh, I definitely think another draft of the script should be written with, you know, from a more realistic point of view, I guess. Well, and it kind of comes down to... George Romero's Day of the Dead. Originally, when he had a $15 million budget for that movie, he, he made it this giant zombie epic, which eventually all the stuff he cut out of the movie became Land of the Dead. So that, that gives you a, a hint of what he tried to do in 1985 on $15 million. And he said he could have done it. But then, for whatever reason, they cut his budget by two-thirds, and he only had $5 million. So... He didn't try to make his big zombie epic on $5 because he knew he couldn't do it. He said, I have to rewrite the script to now fit a $5 million budget. Whereas today, these lower-budget filmmakers would go, I'm still going to make my zombie epic. That's what CG is for. Ah, man. Your, your opinion on that, McMullen? <laughs> that's, just, that's just awful. I mean, I think, I mean, C CGI is just, it's a crutch. God, I, I'm even having trouble forming the words right now. I, I, I know that I, even if I get famous somehow and I get wealthy and I can make any movie I want to, I will never, ever make a movie with CGI. The only way I think CGI should be in a film is as cleanup. You t remove matte lines, remove 
wire work, or if it's supposed to look CGI, like in Lord of Illusions, the, the dream sequence, the creature clearly looks CGI, but it's also a dream sequence, so it's kind of supposed to not seem like the real world. Does that make sense? Yeah, like if you take the Lawnmower Man, for example, uh, of course you have to have some CGI in that because that was integral to the plot. But I would I would never make make a movie with CGI if uh, if it was a budgetary reason. Like if I said, well, I can't afford to do this for real, so I'll just do it CGI. No, I would write something else that I could do practically. Well, and then you've also got the weird phenomena of, like, for instance, all the Steven Seagal, those horrible direct-to-video movies that he's been doing ever since Exit Wounds. Do you guys realize how big of budgets those things had? Six to ten million. Yeah, six to ten million on average for these movies with where it's the obvious stunt devils. It's CGI explosions, CGI blood, CGI bullets. They're all shot in Europe to save money. Could you imagine what Lloyd Kaufman could do with six to ten million dollars? I don't think he would buy four and a half million dollars worth of Coke for Steven Seagal. (laughs) I'm guessing that's where it all went. You know, and this, these are the movies where Steven Seagal can't even be bothered to come back and loop himself. So you've got all the the obvious voice doubles in the movie too. And you know, when when I watch these things, I I watch one of those and I'm like, uh, I'm giving this a one or two million dollar budget max. And then I find out this thing was ten million dollars. Are you serious? And that's just sickening to me. That's not. And then everyone calls, oh, it's a low budget movie. No, it's not. $10 million, even in today's market, that's not a low-budget movie. And that's what I'm talking about, how the term low-budget is misappropriated. Well, it's used as a marketing tool more than anything. You've also goes the other way. Movies that, you know, keep in mind, I loved Grindhouse. That movie should not have cost as much as it did. The whole point of Grindhouse was to make like a 70s-style drive-in movie. So when you're spending $60 million on that, Kind of defeats the purpose, or is that just to me? Um, I don't think it it defeats the purpose. I I, I find it weird and ironic and nonsensical. But, I mean, the money was spent to give it the right look. And uh, the right look, here's where the irony irony comes in. The right look is uh, to make it look like it was cheaply made. Um, I'm still, to this day, wondering why they didn't just make it cheaply. Yeah, That, That was my thing right away. Okay. The thing with Grindhouse, though, th- that was a tribute to the look of a movie, not the process of a movie. Which is why I want to I want to do something. I want I want like Alki David, the crazy billionaire. I want him to fund a reality show for big budget filmmakers and low budget filmmakers. Now think of the brilliance of this. I've thought this out. Now you want to take somebody like Michael Bay, who cannot work with a small budget. And you take Michael Bay and James Cameron and people like that, and you give them $400,000 and tell them this part of the contest. You have three weeks to use this money. This includes your camera equipment, your editing, your cast, everything. You have three weeks to make a releasable film because Roger Corman did it on far smaller budgets in that kind of time frame. So I don't think that's unreasonable. And you see who the true filmmakers are. Can Michael Bay adapt to making an under half million dollar film in three weeks? And then that would also weed out those who've forgotten how to be a low budget filmmaker like James Cameron. He came from the Roger Corman school. He used to know how to stretch a budget. 
Let's see if he still can. And then you pit him up against people like Uwe Boll or real low-budget filmmakers or even Robert Rodriguez, who knows how to be a low-budget filmmaker. Then you've got the brilliance of you get an entire reality show out of this. So you've got ratings and you sell it to a network. Then when you're done, you've got 8 to 10 fully releasable movies direct to DVD. You can't lose money on this. This is a brilliant idea that somebody needs to fund. If I if I were Mark Cuban or if I had access to Mark Cuban, this show would happen manana. I would totally watch this show every episode. So I think this is a brilliant idea. I need some crazy billionaire like like Mark Cuban or Alki David to go, you know what? This is this is great because I've never seen anything like that. I mean, yeah, they tried that the lot thing on Fox, but not only did that tank, but it was really crappy and they weren't trying to do the low budget thing. Because I would want to see that someone like James Cameron, if he's got to work with a stable of actors he's not used to, if he can't get in the catered meals, and part of the deal would be you can't make deals later, like, hey, Bruce Willis, if you work for scale on this movie now, I'll I'll guarantee you a role in my next big budget movie. It would have to be you have to make the movie as if you do not have anything lined up next or you do not have a name to go off of. And I would like to see these guys battling for supremacy. I really would. Now, what would the the, the, um, qualification for who wins be? Would it be the quality of the movie or the profit of the movie? Fans would vote on the best film. Oh, of course. Like any reality show. Yeah. You got to pull the American Idol and interactive angle into this, too. So fans would vote on who actually wins. And I don't think... I don't think it's being facetious to say I think someone like Rodriguez or Ball would totally wipe the floor in this competition with someone like Cameron or Bay. I, if this show were actually happening, I would bet on Robert Rodriguez. Exactly. Well, I would bet on somebody like Ball or Robert Rodriguez who they still make movies um, on low budgets, but they know the the effort of being there you know, with the production, going to these other places. People like Michael Bay, they're going to go there in their limo if at all. The, one of the reasons I asked you to be on this episode, McMullen, was you're a, a low-budget short films or still films, but what are some of your in-the-trench stories of not having the money to do what you want or or doing like what we talked about, having to find a creative way to solve a problem if this were a big-budget movie would not even be a problem. And I will point out his movie Time Crime Redo has some of the worst audio I've ever heard. All of the movie is looped, and it sounds like it was recorded in a bathroom. Okay, well, uh, first of all, none of the movie is looped. Uh, I will I will say that. That's, um, that's how crappy it sounded in real life. <laughs> and I'm not saying that excuses, I'm and just maybe saying... Maybe it should have been looped, how's that? It, yeah, it, it totally should have been looped. I think the biggest problem that I run into is because I think finding loyal and conscientious manpower is the problem that most people are going to run into. Because if you don't have uh, a check for half a million dollars from a rich relative, and if you don't have any connections in the film industry, and if you are truly starting from nothing, then manpower will be your biggest issue. Are you talking manpower as just crew or trying to find the actors or even the correct equipment that you need? I'm talking crew. Equipment, uh, because here's here's what I did when I was very young. I uh, I had a college fund. I went to film school. I only made it one year because I ran out of money. Because I bought uh, an XL1 Canon XL1 camcorder uh, and a wide-angle lens, 
with the lens that it came with, which is a t- at the time was very cutting edge. And from there, uh, after I dropped out of school, I just made a whole bunch of different movies. I've actually made a feature-length movie that uh, I hope will never, ever see the light of day again. Uh, Jowski, did, did you ever watch the feature that I made? I screened it. Yes, that's right. You did. The Rubik Method. Yes. All right. I, I need to see this now, McMullen. I really – I'd rather you didn't. It's not that bad. <laughs> is, is it worse than Transformers 2? Come on. No. It's it's a lot better than Transformers 2. But no, casting casting was nothing. It's easier to get your friends who will not abandon you when they get bored and turn them into actors than it is to find actors willing to put up with the way you do things. Which uh, a lot of them will say, well, this is not professional, he's not doing this right. But they don't really know any better than you do. So, and uh, it's, it's just, it's a lot easier to tell your friends how to act, to write, char- to write characters with specific people in mind, people that you know will do it for you. Well, what would you do if, for whatever reason, you're, you're casting you know, some small movie, through some string of dumb luck coincidences, you're able to afford Eric Roberts for one day? Would okay. you want to, or and, and you know, work with his ego and you know things like that, or would you say no? I'd rather I'd rather not have Mr. Roberts in my movie. And I say that because Eric Roberts is one of those few people who can go from The Dark Knight and The Expendables to Sharktopus and Project Solitude without missing a beat. He's one of those few actors that's in both A-list Hollywood and Z-list Hollywood simultaneously, all in the same week, as far as we know. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. That's why I'm just using Eric Roberts as an example. Because let's face it, if you've got ten thousand bucks extra, he's actually attainable. I think Eric Roberts is a great example. Here's what I would do: I would hire Eric Roberts. I would I would write a character, especially for him, uh, one of those one scene stealing kind of characters. He, he would, would be write. the big villain at the end. Because come on, how often is Eric Roberts not the villain? I I might do that just just to mess with him. I might just go like completely. At a left field, I might have him play like a scoutmaster or something. But uh, I would write a scene especially for him. I would shoot it. I would have him sign a waiver allowing his likeness to be used in all uh, either EPK materials or DVD bonus features. And I would have a friend of mine with a handheld camcorder follow him around the whole time he is on set. Because I think that's where I would get my money's worth. You think you'd get your money's worth in the bonus features rather than the actual cameo? Exactly. A Hollywood ego on a zero, no-budget production, I, I would pay handsomely to see that. That is almost like bow-fingering it. Oh my god, that that's that's a great example. Well, and then you also got to remember, when you're working on really low budgets, especially today, you need to be conscious of who you're nice to and who you're not. Going back to Lloyd Kaufman, if you read the intro to his book and, and you look at his, his very first film, there was a young production assistant on that film that Kaufman threw coffee at and yelled at. This young guy was named Oliver Stone. And after Oliver Stone became a big name, he wouldn't return Kaufman's phone calls. So you, you never knew, no, that, that little production assistant that get you the, got you the coffee, they might be somebody that you want to work for down the line. Right. And, I mean, being the kind of person who would throw coffee on somebody, that's the price you pay. But uh, because, like, I, I love Lloyd. I've, I've known him many years now, and uh, I will defend him to death. Oh, no, but... I'm, not, I'm not yelling at Lloyd. I think Lloyd, I, I love his stuff, So and I'm a huge trauma fan. I'm just saying that's one of the examples he gives of how he stuck his own foot in his mouth by, you know, just being mean to some 
you know, some stupid little PA that didn't know what he was doing, and then years later, it's Oliver Stone. Yeah, and based on what I know about Oliver Stone, I am convinced that he had it coming somehow. Maybe Lloyd was justified. We don't we we don't hear the whole story. What did Oliver Stone do to deserve that? He, Lloyd didn't go into that. Yeah, there there's probably a reason. Cocaine was involved. Let's just leave it at that. He knocked over the camera and broke like two cameras and a tripod. I'd throw coffee at him for that. Well, but but then you've you've also got. I mean, everyone out there has probably heard the story of how Francis Ford Coppola got to direct Dementia 13, right? Francis Ford Coppola was the sound guy on I think the original Fast and the Furious. It 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 was a, it was some car racing movie and he actually had the mic too close to the camera. So through all the sound he was recording, you could hear the camera motor running. So the sound was terrible and Coppola had the balls to try and claim that that's what the the actual sound designer told him to do and Corman's like, "This guy's got balls. I can work with this guy." I've actually had that problem before. Jowski, if you remember the Rubik method, there was one scene where uh, you you could hear the the camera, um, okay. like in, in the finished movie. I mean, and that was back in 2002. That was 10 years ago. I've learned a lot since then. Um, but using time crime as an example, the reason why the sound is so lousy is because uh, it's not for lack of equipment. I had a Sennheiser boom mic in a wire mesh Zeppelin. The reason it sounded terrible is because I didn't have a boom operator. That was me. I was working the camera with one hand, walking, didn't have a dolly, holding the boom mic with the other one. And you need a pole because it has, has to come from, from on top to get decent sound. Uh, and that was a mistake that I, that I learned from. Oh, no, I've been a boom operator. I know, I, know which, I know exactly what you're saying when it comes to the boom. But I, th- I think manpower is, is, the biggest, is the biggest problem because the digital re- revolution – has uh, leveled the playing field to an extent. It did not go exactly the way that I wished it would have gone, because with when anybody can make a feature-length movie on digital video, edit it themselves, it should return everything back to its roots. It should make theoretically. The, yeah, theoretically, it should uh, make the high the higher quality movie more desirable. Uh, instead, it just kind of turned filmmaking into a Special Olympics. It made it so. Anyone could make a movie. Unfortunately, it made it so anyone could make a movie. Yeah, what we learned is that not everybody should make a movie. Right. It, it, it kind of is, is like giving the camera, in a lot of cases, to the special needs kid and just saying, go make me a movie. Well, you do have the people that everybody starts somewhere. Everybody has their learning experiences. Yes, that that right. is fair, but there's also people that just clearly are untalented, too. But the fact that there is so much of that untalented stuff out there, you have no benchmark. You make something crappy, you're like, well, it's the same as everything else out there. I don't have to improve. Even in the drive-in era, there was still a, a level of quality. It was low, but there was a level of quality you had to hit. Nowadays, not really. Although that there wasn't even that level of quality in the direct-to-video era. No, I'm just I'm talking about like even in the drive-in era, there were movies that that the drive-ins were offered, and they were like, no, this that this is too bad even for the drive-in crowd. And on video, yes, it democratized it. That's how you got things like Cannibal Camp out and whatnot. It, it, in a way, it sounds like the three of us are bitching that that anyone can make a movie, and that's somehow a bad thing. 
But am I wrong that 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 is somehow a bad thing? You you should have to have a level of talent or creativity to make a movie. Or am I am I being elitist with that? I, I don't I don't think I don't think we're being elitist with this. I think it's good that everybody has the opportunity. I just think once someone who actually is talented and actually does want to tell a story that they're passionate about. The problem is what happens after they're done with making their movie. Say someone who started with nothing, financed the movie as they went along, using their own equipment, using their own crew, everything like that. They made a really good movie. What happens then is they have to know somebody in a, a studio. Because let's face it, there are no indie dis- distributors left. Troma might be the last one. There, a lot of people would argue and they would say the internet is the true indie distributor, that you can literally put the movie out yourself, you can press a thousand copies for two thousand bucks, and you can sell it on your own website. That's the ultimate democracy when it comes to distribution. Again, in theory, that is fine. In practice, that doesn't work for sh- well, yeah, Josh. I mean, in a perfect world, that's what everybody would be doing, regardless of how much money they have in the bank. You take a filmmaker like like me, take a filmmaker like Jowski, and then you take someone like uh, Steven Spielberg or Michael Bay. We would all be making movies on our own, selling enough to, to break even, maybe make a little bit of a profit just to make the next movie, and then distribute it ourselves on the internet. No, no MPAA, no advertising costs, no press junkets, none of that stuff. And in a perfect world, that's what everybody would be doing. But I think greed enters into it. I think there are too many people. There are too many people who make movies for the wrong reasons because they want to get rich, because they want a jacuzzi in their car, and they it's it's greed that drives too many people. And the ones that succeed, being driven by greed, those are that's how you wind up with Michael Bay. I, I agree with that, and then you've but you've also got another weird aspect to the to the low budget thing, and this is going back to the fifties. But you guys know about the story of Night of the Ghouls, the the sequel to Plan Nine from Outer Space, right? What happened was Ed Wood made this movie, Night of the Ghouls. Okay, so he com- yeah. he, he completed the movie, and uh, it might have been like sixty one, sixty two, something like that. But it was an official sequel to Plan Nine, had the same Keldon the cop character in it. The movie never came out. Ed Wood actually could not pay the film processing bill, and he just forgot about it and moved on. And then a wide-eyed film student found the film in in the film lab in 1983, paid the $28 back bill, and had a then completely thought-to-be-lost Ed Wood movie that he ended up releasing. My question is, even on a low-budget level, could you make an entire film and just because you can't pay the film processing bill, literally just forget about it? I mean, Ed Wood didn't die for another 20 years and just never kind of, hey, I wonder whatever happened to that Night of the Ghouls movie I made. Yeah, at no point during the production of Orgy of the Dead did he say, hey, whatever happened to Night of the Ghouls? Yeah, and then the fact that the bill was only $28. Okay, $28 was a lot in the early 60s. I get that. But then... By the time he was not even at his death in the mid-70s, he couldn't have thought, you know what, I can scrape together 30 goddamn dollars to go get my movie out. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of reasons that are exclusive just to Ed Wood that, that he never did that. I personally could never do that. If I had finished a movie, if I had cut it together and watched it on my own beginning to end and liked it, I would find a way to pay the lab processing fee, which wouldn't 
be apropos in my case because I I can I'm never going to be able to afford to shoot anything on film. But I mean, I'm I'm sure there were a lot of reasons just exclusive to Deadwood for that to happen. I think in this day and age, I don't think that would happen. Well, it, you know, you also have like you just brought up shooting on film. That's one thing I will absolutely always stand behind Lloyd Kaufman on. He will not shoot digital. He insists on shooting on film, and, and I, I love the man for that. I I do too. Philosophically, I agree with that. I'm also a purist. I think. If you're not shooting on film, then you're not making a film. You're making a video. But then and, other people would, but then other people would argue with you, me, and Lloyd, and say that well, shooting it on film is going to double your budget. You could get a better movie. You could get bigger actors and better special effects if you would just go digital. I really applaud Kaufman for going. No, digital looks like shit. I'm shooting on film. Digital yeah. won't always look like shit, though. Yeah. No, it, it well, won't. I that's mean, a different and, episode. Well, it's it's just a matter of whether your movie is all about aesthetics or if it's about content. That I, I can only afford to shoot on video. I've always tried to make stuff that's just about content, just about story. Uh, whether it's ridiculous like Time Crime or something more realistic like The Rubik Method. Um, that's always been my, uh, my motive for making a movie. Um, if I had the budget to shoot on film, I totally would. But if it comes down uh, to... You know, d- shooting on video or film, deciding whether or not I make the movie, I'm going to shoot on video. Well, then let me ask you, as a low-budget filmmaker, the number I'm going to throw out sounds large, but in the grand scheme of things, it's not. Film look. To, to take a movie that you shoot on video, to give it professional film look, to make it look like it was shot on film, only costs about $5,000 for a 90-minute movie. Now, 5000 sounds like a lot, but when you consider how much better it makes your movie look, and you could then, you could the trailer would look better. It'd be easier to sell the movie that you would make more money in the long run. And do consider you, how much film costs. Right. Do you think, Charlie, that film look is a good thing or a bad thing, and why so many of these crap movies will not spend the measly $5,000 to make their movie not look like it was shot on a Walmart camera? For me, it would be completely on a case-by-case basis. If if I uh, write a movie, shoot it, edit it, if I really, truly love it, then I would raise the $5,000 to do film look. I think it's a question of directors not, not willing to, to make that leap. Because I was listening to a commentary on, on one of the camp motion pictures stuff. I, I get lots of review screeners for different camp motion pictures things. And I was listening to the commentary, and they were talking about why it looks like it was shot on video. Because it was. One of the guys brings up film look, and he goes, it was an option, but we decided to use that extra five grand to make one of the effects scenes look better. And I'm going, but the whole movie now looks like crap. To me, it would have been better to spend that five grand on film look than on the effects scene. Or, or am, again, am I being an elitist with that? That I, my hatred for digital video is winning out there. Absolutely not. I don't think you're being elitist. If, um, like, if I were in that position and I had the five thousand dollars to spend, can I make the entire movie look better, or just make one lousy effects scene better? I would wind up cutting the effects scene and spending the five grand on film look because you have to keep an eye on the greater good. A lot of people will shoot. I mean, I'm even gonna, I'm even gonna have uh, an example here of uh, something that Tarantino said, something that you really hate, Josh. I remember this from long ago. <laughs> Directors cannot be too in love with their own material. 
because it leads to stupid decisions like that. If because that's it's ironic probably, from Tarantino, who's totally yeah, in love with all the, his own stuff. Scenes, yeah, the cut well, scenes from Death Proof. Well, well, yeah, that's that's the example that I was using uh, because Tarantino, he was so in love with what he shot for the missing reel that he included it in, probably at gross expense to, I guess it was the Weinstein company at that point, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was Miramax that released that. Grand yeah, Grand House, probably yeah. horrible expense to Miramax. He loved it so much that he had to throw it in on the DVD because it just looked too damn good. That is ego, and ego will kill what could be a good movie every time. Like I was talking about the camp motion pictures, I've got a new one called Atomic Brain Invasion, which is a throwback to the 1950s. You know, the scare from space kind of movies where aliens come down and try and steal Elvis's brain in a 50s town. But the, whole, but the whole thing shot on video. And I'm going, with something like that, you can't tell me going to Goodwill and, and buying an old black and white film camera. And even with the film processing fee and buying black and white film, that that would have not helped sell your movie so much better if it was not in color and did not look like digital. That would have totally helped. I mean, and that's how they should have made Grindhouse. They shouldn't have spent all the money to make it look cheap. They should have just been cheap. When I was reading this prior to Grindhouse coming out, when I was reading the behind the scenes on Grindhouse, I think it was in Video Watchdog, all I could think of was this is such a waste. You know, you've got Tarantino's testicles melting off in CGI. Really? Yeah. You've yeah. got heads blowing up in CGI, but it's a throwback to the gross effects movies of the 70s. To me, it really seemed like those guys missed the point. The point was the finished product, was matching the look, not the process. But I think if you used the process, it would have it would have come out like the look. I know it's kind of a circular argument, but I think th- they, they took the wrong approach to that, is the way I look at it. I, I would agree with that, because I like Grindhouse... But it just it's it seemed prohibitive to to make it the way they wound up making it. Where can we find Alex Jowski? www.geekjuicemedia.com. You can also find Jowski at the soup kitchen on Ladies Night. For those that don't know, that that's a joke that goes back to Geek Juice Radio. Jowski has a thing for homeless girls. <laughs> he doesn't really have a thing for homeless girls. It it happened once, and we we're never going to let him forget it. Um, <laughs> You can find me also on uh, geekjuicemedia.com. There's some stuff coming up, and uh, I think you're going to like it, kids. All right, you can find me at 1201beyond.com. Email me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Maybe Brad and Brian will be back next week if they're done being Brad and Brian somewhere else. Thanks, thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Alex, for stopping by tonight. Greyhounds rocking out tonight to maximum rockabilly. When two punks choose to risk the subway for a tube to Piccadilly, whose efforts stir fast gangs for glory, another dumb casualty. Having fun. Salvage six. Hit a flick, knife flicks. Oh, kiss me. Deadly. Tonight. Another battle 
was won and lost down the bishops and last night. Spotlights pick the kids in triumph with a thousand scars in his life. See how they run Will spring promise errors is a black and white Is in 